good morning again and welcome back. Thank you for uh, being as prompt as possible. These breaks always uh, tend to move along a little longer. Um, is Scott here? Is he? He just went out the door. Um, shall we do a sing-along? <laughs> um, let me say just uh, apologies to, and also to Steve, who just had to step out for, for our, our confusion this morning. That was a very inelegant way to begin the morning panel. Uh, uh, there was just some confusion on our part, and I just love that the, the mayor, he just said, well, I guess I, I should start. So, um, we, we, we have foregone the um, formal introductions just because you have them in your program and we want to make sure to leave as much time for the presentations as possible. So um, we were planning on having um, Scott start, but since he's not here, let's, aha, there you are. Great, well, here you are, so, great. Thank you, welcome back. All right, and so so now I'm just gonna turn this over. So we've asked the panelists, they'll each speak for about 15 minutes and then we'll again engage with conversation from the audience. So again, have you all introduce yourselves and thank you so much for being with us. This panel especially I think is, uh, well, all the panels are critical, but this one I think um, rep represents many of the, the, the heart of many of the challenges we face for, for decades now. And so thank you all for being here. And I'll turn it over to you, Scott. Go ahead. Thank you. I'll turn it to Chris, then there. Oh. We reversed the order on oh, you, you did. independently. See, this is what happens. You just give them power, <laughs> and then they just take away. So, yes, that's fine then. Go ahead. Thank right. you. Well, good morning. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you to Dr. Moore. Uh, is it on? Hello. Yes, thank you to Dr. Moore and uh, to also to Lauren and Sarabin for uh, hosting this and making it very, very easy to get here and be a participant here. Thank you. Um, my name is Christopher Montoya. I am a retired Border Patrol agent from Tucson. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the Border Patrol is a law enforcement organization that patrols along the border. And uh, they, we, well my old job, we used to be um, and still are, to a large degree, involved in a lot of debate, a lot of criticism, and hopefully this will start to settle some of that debate and move forward and, and progress. Um, I'm also a graduate student at the University of Arizona in Tucson, where I study uh, testimony given by Border Patrol officials to Congress and how that influences legislation and I'll get to that uh, later on. Uh, first, I want to start with a quick story, uh, 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 an experience that I, ha happened to me when I first started in the border. Uh, I apprehended a group of about 30 people. It seems like a lot, but it's not really. It's another story. Anyway, I'm walking with this group of 30 people, and we're walking north to meet up with a transport van which was about, about a mile north of the border on a deserted road. And I'm walking and there was a, a girl from Mexico City. We start talking, you know, just, just chatting up. And I say, well, let's go out in style. So she grabs my arm and we start walking out together. So we're walking and talking and giggling. And then uh, we get to the, uh, where the transport van is and the agent who was a supervisor looks at me and says, 
what the hell are you doing? These people can hurt you. So I looked at her and said, you wouldn't hurt me, would you? Of course, she giggled and, and, and made a joke about it. So that was my idea then. That's how I sort of started thinking about migration uh, through that particular lens of I never quite saw a threat uh, from migrants. Are there threats? Are there assaults on agents? Of course. It's rare, but it does happen. But for me and a lot of people, this threat narrative really has taken off. And it's taken off into a place where mythology has is replaced reality. Uh, so let me begin uh, here. Just forget about the border for the moment as a geographical boundary, political boundary. Think of it, uh, imagine it as, a, as an ideological collision of tectonic plates, say, um, as contested space between a very deep and fundamental idea is the very nature of religion, one that is sacred versus a profane. And it's a space on the border that's simultaneously familiar and foreign, because you're there in the midst of it, in the mix, constantly, this collision. Um, I get these ideas from Marcia Eliade, and she tells us in her book that uh, for religious man, space is not homogeneous. He experiences interruptions, breaks in it. Some parts of space are qualitatively different from others. Some parts of this space are deemed sacred, and other parts are thought of as profane. Now, that leaves us with these two modes of being in the world. Okay, um, Very old, old fundamental ideas, the sacred versus the profane. Now, the sacred is a space, all right, where we've conceptualized inhabited territory or occupied by us, Americans, our world. Religious man thinks of his world as the center of the world. This is the center, and all around it is the outside. So the sacred is the realm that lives in constant opposition to the profane. It is the realm of order of the cosmos. It is the realm of law and order. Immigration law, to be exact, immigration law. So to these state actors who enforce these laws, it is simply known as law and order. This is the law, and I will enforce it. End of story. Um, it's the mission to protect the sacred, which is the homeland, which is America, a very sacred mission. Uh, but here's the thing. Some will claim that this law and order, this peace, is being transgressed upon overtly by the profane. Now, the profane comes in, is everything outside, foreign, chaotic space, peopled by ghosts, demons, Foreigners, very important. It is also the unknown, a sort of other world, occupied but not occupied by us, our people, our space, the center of the world. The profane is the realm of chaos, 
that exists in opposition to order, always. So to a border enforcer and others, to say the militia say, it represents chaotic space that threatens our world by invading us. So in lawbreakers, so for example, uh, criminal migrants say, or drug runners, they cross that barrier between the sacred and the profane, it symbolizes the regression of the cosmos, which is order into chaos. So these are very powerful ideas, but I'm gonna argue that they fail to really apprehend the nuances of the border region, its complexities, its nuance. It's very unique, I've experienced it for many years, especially in the, in the immigration context that we find ourselves in today. Um, and it, it doesn't really, it's not really addressed enough or well enough, articulated enough by our current uh, policies. But even, even so, I think that this idea of the sacred and the profane is very useful in, in helping to explain this idea. So I want to argue that the U.S.-Mexico borderlands are a contested space being seen through this, it's a very deep and fundamental religious lens by certain state actors such as the Border Patrol and non-state actors as well, militias, and even going so far to say is um, evangelical groups, uh, Catholic groups, they, they also occupy this sacred space, but I'm going to argue that it's more inclusive, that it's more... Uh, it's more progressive in a sense. So I'm examining how this, how this comes about. Um, it's a very primitive lens and it lacks refinement concerning immigrants, human migration and criminality. And I think when, when state actors follow this very, very simplistic yet profoundly deep view they fail to align with modern policing practices at the end of the day. Um, in contrast, like I said before, to the Kino Border Initiative, the Border Action Network, no more deaths on the border, other things like that. Uh, border enforcement personnel, generally speaking, see the problem not as an all-inclusive humanitarian mission, but as a good guy versus bad guy scenario. And I want to point out some things here. This is congressional testimony given by uh, Border Patrol agent Brandon Judd, who is the uh, National Border Patrol Council Union. It's a union. The president gave it to the House Judiciary Committee uh, in February of last year. Quote, as I was in church this past Sunday, my mind was preoccupied with, about this hearing and my testimony. I was thinking about what I could say to help shed light on our current situation. When one of the basic tenets of my religion's faith came to mind, he goes on to quote, we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. All religions that I'm aware of believe in rules, tenets, and commandments. It's no different with the laws of the United States. When persons, whether citizens or not, follow the laws of this great nation, peace and prosperity abound. However, when those laws are broken on a large scale, chaos is the byproduct. And make no mistake, 
chaos defines parts of our southwest border today, end quote. So the language in this testimony is very revealing. So he, in part, he's using religious ideas to sort of frame this complex problem in simple terms. The chaos caused by foreign lawbreakers resolved by law and order, the sacred. Again, this collision between chaos and order. Um, other types of testimony are just as compelling, but are more subtle. An example is a migrant's testimony from the Kino Border Initiative report of last year. Uh, it talks about the migrants testifying, we're not testifying, he's, he's given his testimony, and he's talking about how he was arrested by a Border Patrol agent, and he claims to have been dragged and punched. During this alleged assault, the agent allegedly says to the, the migrant, can't you see this is U.S. territory? That's what he tells him, allegedly says, can't you see this is U.S. territory? So at first glance, you might say, well, this is an expression of a sort of a nationalistic sort of a, a view that the agent has, but I argue it's gonna be, it's deeper. Let's just ignore the direct violence for a bit and the structural violence of the whole situation there, and let's focus on the cultural violence of that statement and, it's, it, and how, how deep it goes. Uh, nationalism loves borders, we know this. And the sacred and the profane also are divided by a barrier. Uh, one more quick quote from Benedict Anderson from Imagine Communities. The nation is imagined as limited and has finite if elastic boundaries beyond which lie other nations. No nation, no nation imagines itself coterminous with mankind. So, I expand that to, to mean that the idea of the sacred and the profane, especially the sacred, is the original imagined community. All border enforcers operate in this contested space between the sacred and the profane. Uh, to, the, to the typical agent, I would argue, everything north of the border is sacred. America, the homeland. Now, very likely most agents are Christians who act out this Christian worldview doing their jobs. So based on this worldview, finding themselves in the middle of this, of this milieu, they bring with them their attached cultural values and their opinions. It's a position that perceives a direct affront to their idea of the sacred an affront to God and country. That's a term, that's, that's a phrase that's been used again and again. Um, so, but, but does this interpretation, based on their, their knowledge, the situated knowledge, help or hinder uh, protecting human rights in the broadest sense? And I would argue that it hinders them. They're being motivated by a very, very deep, much older principle, the sacred in opposition to the profane. There's a fundamental lack of understanding of the complexities of modern human migration and criminality, especially on the southern border. It is a very complex issue. 
so this idea, this current idea of the sacred and the profane, in its current iteration, is problematic. These state actors see the border through this lens as very narrow and constrained. It restricts their sacred space to members only. In contrast, faith-based groups like the Kino Border Initiative, No More Deaths and such, uh, they're, it's a much more inclusive policy, if you will, that gets its view from a more progressive, enlightened interpretation of scripture, uh, that expands the sacred space to be more inclusive, at least for some of the members of the profane, the lawbreakers. Uh, the, this idea of the sacred and the profane, they're deeply embedded in both views both spiritual, both religious views, and those being the, the, the motivation, pardon me, uh, for example, let me give you an example. Faith-based uh, movements such as the Kino Border Initiative are motivated by a different interpretation of scripture. Evangelicals, on the other hand, are still motivated by certain scriptures, certain parts of scripture, but they both share a fundamental idea of the sacred. There's a disconnect there. Mm -hmm. So both have a nice, tidy dogma. Underneath there's the idea of the sacred, but there's this problem, there's this disconnect. So how do you bridge that gap between evangelicals who might see migrants as a threat versus those that don't see migrants as a threat in a more inclusive so I would just suggest that uh, that's our work, my work, uh, is to try and bridge the gap between those two differing views of a very deeper fundamental idea of the sacred versus the profane. Um, but it's very difficult. Uh, Dr. Casey mentioned yesterday in his talk about mission, a, a conundrum for the missions. In an enforcement mission, the conundrum is, is very alive. It's, it's, it's either white or black. It's either lawbreakers, I'll stop, or not. There's no, there's no gray area there. So to try and reform that part of, say, CBP, would be difficult because the mission is very, very dogmatic in its own way. It sees the sacred, those limitations, those constraints, and nothing else. Um, so we have to pay attention to that. Enforcing immigration law was never really about laws, I would argue. It's about opposing chaos immigration laws since day one were racist, let's be honest. Um, the courts 100 years ago were still trying to figure out who was white, who was not white. Mm -hmm. Mexicans, were they, were they white in 1897? Yeah, they're white, okay, great. So it, there's this, uh, it differs from other law enforcement enterprises, I would add. So what do we do? Um, Let's just pay attention to these uh, two differing views. 
and uh, we'll, we'll move forward. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Juanita Molina, and I'm the executive director of both Humane Borders and Border Action Network. It's such an amazing experience to be here with you all this morning, and what I hope is that you will take us with you. I think sometimes working on the border, working on these issues, we feel very separate from other places, and there's a form of desperation and sadness and tragedy that's happening that very few people in the world really know about. And I think it's uh, incredibly important to bring these messages and, and fold it into what's happening for us on a daily basis. Um, first place with Humane Borders, we are a faith-based organization that provides humanitarian aid, which essentially means we do have a death mapping project. We try to respond to the questions of how people die, where they died, and what can we do to prevent further deaths. One of the main reasons why people die in the Tucson sector is because of a death due to dehydration and exposure. So what we do is that we put out water stations in the desert and we flag them. And uh, you know we continue to hold a mirror up to our community and to acknowledge the individual death of each person who dies in, in our sector. We feel it's incredibly important at this time, we're looking at almost 3,000 human remains just in the Tucson sector. That's only in the Tucson sector. Um, every year since 9-11, we've seen about 150 human remains recovered in the desert each year. And the incredible thing is we're not even looking for them. You know, there are thousands of missing persons reports that are filed every year, but we don't have the institutional structures that we do in other forms of law enforcement, other moments of um, responding. Like, say, for example, if I were to call in to say that my child was lost, I would have a physical description, they would take a police report. As far, if I were to say that my sister was crossing in the desert and I don't know where she is, there isn't the same level of response. And also because of the criminalization of an entire population, of course, that makes the need completely invisible. And so within that invisibility, within the structures that should be responding, that reflect our morals and values and infrastructures of society, those are not communicated to um, undocumented people, to the people who, uh, the family members. And that really has a tremendous impact. When we think about the thousands of people, not just the thousands of people who die, but the thousands of people who mourn, the thousands of people whose lives are different because of this. And it's, it's an important discussion to have. Because there is such invisibility in the desert, because of the terrain, because of some of the dynamics that Chris talked about, um, you know, we see this on all levels, and that's where Border Action Network comes in, because we are also a public policy advocacy organization, and also we participate in community reconciliation. We are a systems response. Today and always, we put up a mirror to our government and to our systems and ask, why aren't you responding? What is it that you don't see in, in dealing with us as a community, in individual complaints, situations that come up? 
For me, when I think about the border, the first thing that comes to mind is a beautiful quote from Gloria Ansalúa, who she said, the border is a line across my body. And that's the way that I think that many of us in the community experience this. Uh, you know, this isn't a situation of us and them. This isn't a situation of, you know, the people over there or Border Patrol is over here. No, I mean, we as a Latina living in the Southwest, this is our community. You know, we live on both sides of the line. Our identities are transnational, just inherent to our own community. And then when we look at the issue of Border Patrol, you know, we see that in the Tucson sector alone, most Border Patrol agents are Latino or African American, mostly people of color that we're working with. So for me as a Latina, I can't say they're over there, we're over here. Many of the agents take jobs because of a lot of different issues. And for some of them, it's an economic issue. It's difficult to find work in the Southwest. If you don't have a college degree, if you have a family and you're looking for a livable wage, this is what it becomes. And then, you know, we have agents who, who, who span an entire sort of consciousness of what's going on. And isn't it always the case that our, with our oppressors that we end up policing ourselves? And the oppressor creates the dynamic for that. And of course, all of this, just it just contributes to the demonization of people of color on all lines. It's an interesting dynamic because of course, um, as you know, Chris touched on, the ongoing criminalization of economic migrants as being, see, you know, as being seen as dangerous uh, drug traffickers. Of course, we've heard all of this rhetoric in the media, you know, of traffickers with, you know, calves the size of cantaloupes and people just invading our country. And there's really nothing further than the truth. I mean, really, what we're looking at is a very broad spectrum of people who are coming across the border. As we know, most uh, migration happens through people overstaying visas. So there's a whole layer of middle-class people who come to the United States and have a very different experience. The people that we are working with on the Southwest border are the poorest of the poor, people who really genuinely have no other option than to cross the US-Mexico border. And just like any other situation in life, as we see with cancer, with AIDS, you know, even historically with polio, people are always blamed for their own deaths. They're always blamed for their own disgrace, right? And that's no different here with migration and the rate of death that occurs in the desert. People are always saying, well, didn't they know better? As Trump has famously said, well, you knew what you signed up for, right? And so the, these layers of the way that people talk and the way that people are assimilating this information is incredibly problematic and dehumanizing. Many of the people who arrive to the border are unaware of what the circumstances are gonna be ahead of them. I think one story that really illustrates that um, in our work was um, there was a young woman on the Mexican side, um, and at times we go out with the Mexican military to patrol the area and see if there's anybody that we can pick up that's wanting to turn around. And um, in this particular case, we were in the Pajaritos Mountains, and it's hard to imagine, but there was compacted snow coming down, very cold. And this family couldn't go on. 
the uncle had crossed before, he knew the conditions, and he said, we're not gonna risk this, and he had his 16-year-old niece. The reason they were coming to the United States is because her mother was dying, she was in stage. And so we get in the truck at the moment they decided, we're gonna go back, we can't go on. And the poor girl, crying, crying. And she had the most beautiful eye makeup on. And so making conversation, trying to, you know, de-escalate everything. I said, you know, gosh, you look so beautiful, you know. And she said, well, because I thought I'd see my mother today. And her mother was in Chicago. She had gotten up early that morning to put on her makeup so that she would look beautiful for her mother. She is in the Pajaritos Mountains. There is no way she was going to make that distance. It was impossible for her... Uh, to actually get to see her mother that day. And I think that's the kind of the stream of consciousness, the difficulty in how people approach the border issues, because people are so divorced from what's actually happening on the border. And part of that are the paramilitary structures that we have implemented. And I think it's really difficult for most Americans who are outside of the border to imagine the level of militarization and monitoring that happens on the US-Mexico border. And that paramilitary structures are part of our everyday life and patrolling. As Chris touched on, um, there are many ways that people imagine border patrol functioning in a similar way as law enforcement. Like your local law enforcement and, and holding on to the standards of the police executive research forum. And that's not really the case. And so what we see are, are um, very interrupted structures that are very invasive to people. You know, and not only does this impact migrants, but of course it really impacts First Nation communities throughout Arizona, some of the largest reservations. And there are two tribes that are binational, that are both on the U.S. side and the Mexican side. And, you know, one of the tribal members said to me once, well, you know, there's a general level of acceptance about police intervention and daily life. So like if you're speeding or you shoplift, you expect to see a police officer. But in Arizona, you are stopped and questioned just because you are, just because you happen to be walking in that area. And that's where, you know, for the lack of freedom of movement, the difficulty, the challenges, and the criminalization of our presence as people of color. I'm a US citizen. I was born here. And, you know, there, there are periods of time where I've constantly been stopped. You know, officers flat out saying, you know, do you have guns in your car? Do you have drugs in your car? Um, I was doing hospice work, and I live in a rural part of uh, southern Arizona. And I was coming back late at night, and an officer stopped me and said, well, decent people don't drive this road at night, so I'm going to find out what's wrong with you. And again, you know, it's just, it's a very challenging environment of what we see. Grief is a very polarizing emotion, and so we see a great deal of mistrust among all parties. And that becomes some of our challenges because we try to reconcile the community as best we can. You know, to state the obvious, all institutions are comprised of people. And so when it comes to Border Patrol, as much as I would love to have a removed relationship and, and just a hypercritical relationship without any substance, the reality is, is that I'm sending senior citizens out into the desert every day <laughs> to put out water in the desert. The reality is, is that we find migrants who are in dire straits. 
where they need to be medically transported or are in, in locations that we can't physically get there. So essentially, until I get a Black Hawk helicopter and have the ability to propel myself into a canyon, I will have to continue to have some kind of a relationship with law enforcement. And you know, part of what I wanted to, to touch on that is that, you know, um, I, I think the best way to kind of describe this is, uh, you know, the Mayans talked about that there was no tangible reality that we all lived in our own dream. And I feel like I've learned so much from my elders, from other people, who, you know, First Nation communities that have talked to me about medicine circles and how to approach, approach difficult communication. And so when it comes to talking to Border Patrol, when it comes to uh, trying to create relationships, I look at it as the dream because their dream is very different than my dream. What I see are uh, economic migrants, refugees, people that we are missing an opportunity by not housing, by not welcoming into our borders, by not listening to their narratives. And for them, they see a constant state of fear, that we are under siege, that we are under attack by people coming across our borders on every level. Even though it's not necessarily rational or logical, um, we hear a lot about Middle Eastern terrorists coming across the U.S.-Mexico border, but yet there's no tangible evidence of that. Uh, you know, it has happened in the northern border, you know, I mean, it, there they have some logical base to it. But instead of, you know, trying to convince them otherwise, we try to find common values and work from there. I found it working in social change movements for many years, sometimes I felt like a car salesman, especially in domestic abuse, where you sit down and you're trying to get somebody out of a violent situation and it's almost like, okay, what do I need to tell you so that you will sign on and leave your husband today? You know, and the reality is, is that we cannot do that. These conversations, the people's self-perceptions of their world is not that simple. We have to continuously have dialogue. We have to let the space fill up with what their concerns are if we're to have them listen to any of our concerns. And, you know, I think what we look at it is almost a form of spiritual practice. When I approach people and try to have these community forums and discussions, we try to include everybody's reality. Sometimes the most effective things we could do, because we had that same kind of Carl Salesman approach to Border Patrol when we first started as an organization. And um, Sister Elizabeth Orman was one of our founders, and she was a Franciscan nun who went in to meet with Sector Chief Aguilar, who was now moved up in the ranks and describe the project. And Aguilar's response was, I will be the first one to handcuff you <laughs> before what you are doing. What you are doing is unlawful. You are, and, and these are things that I hear over and over again from Border Patrol agents is, you are killing us. You are facilitating criminal syndicates from coming through this area. And, you know, through the time, and really, to be honest with you, just out of frustration, we'd meet with them, they'd say rude things to us, we'd leave, we'd be annoyed all day. And uh, it just kind of came to a point where a lot of our members were just saying, oh, why do we even try to meet with Border Patrol? So we had a new chief, they set up a meeting, 
And that's where we just went ahead and um, just embraced the topic. Instead of trying to get them to understand our point of view, I just sat there and let that go and just let them express themselves. And that was the beginning of a dialogue. I watched this once with uh, Bishop Minerva Carcaño, and we were meeting with Joe Arpaio. And it was a, a very interesting experience. That man is slick. What we were talking about yesterday around messaging was fascinating to me, because Joe Arpaio had wonderful messaging, and he was always very together. And the one point we saw a crack was when Bishop Carcaño stopped and asked him how did he feel spiritually about what he was doing, and just let it open. Not trying to push anything, not trying to prompt out, oh, are you bad? Are you a horrible person? Can you tell us more about being a horrible person? She just let the space lie. And, you know, to just kind of sum it all up, I think that, you know, when we're looking at our policies, we're looking at the deaths, we're looking at the daily humiliations that we go through. You know, many times military communities talk about freedom isn't free. Right? And so we continue to pay for that on the border every day in the increased militarizations, the losses, the deaths. And we see the generational footprint that all of this and the impact of our policy and just the tangible grief that we feel as a community. This is something that will endure for many years. And I hope you'll join me in trying to do something about this. Because the reality is someday there's going to be a time when our children or our children's children are going to ask us, where were you when all of this death was occurring? So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here today and, and to be here with my panelists. I'm Kristen Dumay. I'm a historian of gender, politics, and American Christianity. I'm currently working on a couple of projects, one of which is a book tentatively titled Onward Christian Warriors, Evangelical Masculinity and the Rise of Donald Trump. Uh, first, a bit of introductory background. I grew up in Sioux County, Iowa, one of the reddest counties in the nation, and one that mirrors the white evangelical voting statistic nearly perfectly, 82% voted Trump, 12% Clinton. Growing up, the town was virtually all white, um, now, however, 10% of the population are Hispanic immigrants, most of whom are working in the local packing plants. I teach at Kelvin College, a college of the Christian Reformed Church, a denomination that, while increasingly influenced by evangelicalism, also draws on a historically reformed tradition, a tradition that inspires social justice activism, as well as ethnocentric isolationism and cultural conservatism. My college's most notorious alum these days is Betsy DeVos, whose family, along with the Prince family, are significant donors. The challenge of speaking across divisions in American Christianity and the nation as a whole is for me a daily challenge. And today I want to think about how we might consider uh, white evangelical views on immigration. Now on the one hand, the Bible and Christian tradition have a lot to say about loving the stranger and caring for the foreigner. And there is a universality in the Christian faith that ostensibly cuts across tribe and nation. All of which is to say that a strong Christian case can be made for a radical hospitality, permeable borders, and a compassionate approach to immigration. 
And yet, white evangelicals, those who purportedly hold the Bible in highest regard, have been more opposed to immigration reform and have more negative views about immigrants than any other religious demographic. This despite advocacy of many evangelical organizations and leaders. The truth is, the Bible appears to hold little sway when it comes to immigration. A 2015 poll found that 90% of all evangelicals say that the scripture has no impact on their views toward immigration reform. Rather than basing their views on scripture, white evangelicals are acting out of a powerful, cohesive worldview, an ideology that is at the heart of their religious and political identity, an ideology influenced by conservative media sources, but one that is also deeply rooted in their own faith tradition. Now, evangelicals I know don't actually talk all that much about immigration. They talk a lot about other things. And I argue that those other things position them in critical ways when it comes to views of immigrants, borders, and the American nation. My own research on masculinity focuses on one facet of the evangelical worldview, but a foundational one. In many ways, gender provides the glue that holds together their larger ideological framework. For years, I've been tracing evangelicals' embrace of a particularly militaristic construction of masculinity, um, which goes hand in hand with visions of the nation as vulnerable and in need of defense. Now first, let me share some of my methodological influences. I draw on the work of Melanie McAllister, on the role of culture in influencing political orientations, and the centrality of religion in this process. As McAllister puts it, religion has returned to the center of the explicit and implicit geographies that structure daily life. I also draw on feminist scholar Cynthia Enlow, who links masculinity and militarism. Militarism, she reminds us, is never natural or monolithic, and it cannot survive without constant tending, coaxing, and manipulating. Enlow demonstrates convincingly how constructions of masculinity are central to this process. And then I bring Enlow together with Andrew Basevich and his work on American militarism, particularly his claim that American militarism of the scope and scale that we see is unimaginable without the support of evangelicals. Now I'm a historian, so I begin my study back in the 1950s. I could actually go back much further, but I have to, have to um, restrain myself. So I start with in the 1950s because I think this is a critical decade. It's there that we see gender closely linked to the security of the American nation. Now the context then was the Cold War. Communists threatened the nation and the family. They were anti-God, anti-American, anti-family. And reinforcing proper gender roles, that of male breadwinner and protector, and female homemaker and protected, was seen as essential for the security of the American nation. Now, evangelicals and fundamentalists at this time embraced and promoted Cold War politics, people like Billy Graham and Billy James Hargis. Um, they did so for a variety of reasons, one of which is they, they really embraced this kind of stark good versus evil, and America was, of course, good. But they weren't alone, and this is important. This was a time of Cold War consensus, and it was the height of American civil religion. Um, 
In the 1960s, however, this consensus starts to unravel, thanks to the rise of feminism, the civil rights movement, and the Vietnam War. At this point, then, many Americans embrace a more critical view of the nation and the military, and they're moving away from, quote unquote, traditional gender roles. At this time, however, evangelicals cling tightly to these values. They embrace and hold even more firmly to traditional gender roles, Christian nationalism, and the military. And particularly in terms of the military, this is, this is a change. Up until that point, many conservative Protestants had been very skeptical of the military. Um, and that was a place where young men would go and be corrupted. And that really changes during the Vietnam War, when the rest of the American population becomes increasingly skeptical of the virtues of the military. So this constellation of issues becomes central to their religious and political identity and key to their political mobilization in the 1970s. At the heart of all of this is a discourse of evangelical masculinity. People like James Dobson, Jerry Falwell, Phyllis Schlafly, Edwin Lewis Cole, all of these figures start in the 1970s to identify a crisis of masculinity. And this is, again, against the backdrop of the Vietnam War. Um, for example, Dobson um, was blaming feminists for tampering with the time-honored roles of protector and protected, and for denigrating masculine leadership as macho. He saw this as a crisis of gender, but also as a threat to national security. For the sake of the nation, a call to arms was needed, a reassertion of the quote-unquote Judeo-Christian concept of masculinity in the face of feminist concerted attack on maleness. By the 1980s, evangelical masculinity is thoroughly imbued with militarism. And during the Reagan administration, evangelicals form a very close alliance with the US military. And interestingly, James Dobson is a key facilitator of this alliance. I'm fast forwarding a lot here. In the 1990s, with the end of the Cold War and the rise of the Promise Keepers movement, this militant masculinity is for a time softened into the tender warrior motif. But with Clinton in the White House, UN peacekeeping missions raising concerns about sovereignty, women and gays in the military, the crisis is back. It's renewed, and by the end of the decade, we see evangelical writers dropping the tenderness and fully embracing the warrior. So by 2001, books like Dobson's Bringing Up Boys decry how a small but noisy band of feminists has left, left men feminized, emasculated, and wimpified. Doug Wilson's Future Men insists that boys must be raised to be warriors, to embrace dominion. Young boys should obviously be trained in the use of real firearms. Wilson, in fact, called for a theology of fist fighting. Most significantly, John Eldridge's wildly popular Wild at Heart insisted that masculinity was thoroughly militaristic. A crisis in masculinity pervaded both church and society because a warrior culture no longer existed. Man was made to image God, a warrior God. Aggression was part of the masculine design. Attempts to pacify men only emasculated them. If you want a safer, quieter animal, there's an easy solution, castrate him. Yes, a man is a dangerous thing, but the very strength that made men dangerous also made them heroes. 
Now, only months after Wild at Heart debuted, terrorists struck the United States. Almost overnight, Eldridge's call for manly heroes developed a deep and widespread cultural resonance. Evangelicals, many of whom had never strayed from Cold War gender constructions, stood at the ready to address these new conditions. For them, it was an almost effortless switch from a communist to an Islamic threat. When those two planes hit the Twin Towers on September 11, one of the writers, um, as one of the writers put it, what we suddenly needed were masculine men. Feminized men don't walk into burning buildings, but masculine men do, and that is why God created men to be masculine. Dobson, too, connected the dots, suddenly characterizing Islamic fundamentalism as one of the most serious threats to American families. The security of our homeland and the welfare of our children are, after all, family values, he said. So why does any of this matter? And first of all, these books and many, many others, dozens of these, they sold millions of copies. Um, Wild at Heart alone sold over four million copies. And it's not just that people are buying these books, but it's how they're reading these books. These books are being consumed in devotional contexts. Together in small group Bible studies, pastors are recommending them. They're being read in community as truth. Truth about how the way things are and how the way um, and the way things ought to be. So if McAllister, Enlow, and Basevich are right, we should be attentive to the sources within evangelicalism that create and sustain militarism. Because remember, Christian faith can also inspire pacifism and models of masculinity that celebrate restraint, dignity, and gentleness. Yet we know that traditionalist evangelicals are more likely than other Americans to approve of U.S. engagement in preemptive war, favor defense spending, disavow multilateral engagements, hold anti-Islamic views, support military action against terrorism, and condone the use of torture, and of course have negative views of immigrants and immigration reform. More to the point, how precisely does this militarized evangelical masculinity affect immigration? As our case study asserts, religion, though often unacknowledged, is deeply embedded in how Americans imagine the border. From the Cold War to the present, evangelicals have perceived the American nation as extremely vulnerable. Strong, aggressive, militant men must defend her. The border is this line of defense, and many evangelicals do see the border as a site of profound danger and chaos. The key threat right now is Islamic terrorism, and immigrants and refugees are linked to terrorism in the minds of evangelicals. And um, folks on the ground, activists, educators I've talked to said this has really spiked again under Trump. It was subsiding under Obama, and now they cannot talk about immigration without addressing fears of terrorism. Race is also a factor here. For evangelicals, this aggressive militant masculinity is a racialized masculinity. Black men, Middle Eastern men, Hispanic men are not part of this. Their aggression is dangerous and in a bad way. It's worth noting that this view of aggressive, testosterone-fueled masculinity also rejects political correctness, and so racist stereotypes um, are, are condoned in this way as well. Um, a theory that I have in terms of, of what's happening here um, social class comes into play here. Um, in this discourse of masculinity, um, it, it forges a kind of cross-class bond across economic differences for white men. 
Um, since the 1960s, we also see a dogged commitment to law and order, and, and that comes out of the 1960s. Um, military and law enforcement are elevated and sanctified. They are the ideal men. They can do no wrong. Given all of this, many evangelicals have concluded that we need strong men and a strong man, Donald Trump. Trump's character flaws aren't the stumbling block we'd expect him, them to be. Boys will be boys. In the words of Robert Jeffress, the Reverend Robert Jeffress, I want the meanest, toughest, son of a you-know-what I can find in that role, and I think that's where many evangelicals are. So evangelicals like to claim that the Bible is central to their identities and social and political commitments, and many scholars continue to define evangelicals in terms of their doctrinal commitments. But I think that misses the bigger picture. Evangelicalism is a historical and cultural movement. For activists who want to change evangelical views on immigration, quoting scripture will not have much impact unless they find ways to disrupt this larger constellation of commitments. So in conclusion, how can religious literacy help us speak across this divide? There are some short-sighted approaches. We could speak in their, language, uh, in their language. Keeping families together really resonates with evangelicals. Focusing on innocent victims. They're here through no fault of their own. Um, but the evangelical activists that I've spoken to really push back against this, realizing that that's very short-sighted and it ends up actually affirming these structures. Um, stories are effective, personal connections, but evangelicals have a strong streak of individualism, a tendency to see exceptional individual cases, this one's a good immigrant, and to refuse to see the larger system. The bigger, more important question, I think, is how can religious literacy help us reshape contingent cultural norms to more effectively pursue peace and justice. And here, to be honest, I'm not optimistic. It's incredibly difficult to disrupt a cohesive worldview of this sort, particularly one that is inherently suspicious of opposing views, that embraces a victimization narrative along with a moral exceptionalism, also one that is backed by billions of dollars, a spiritual industrial complex and one that has direct and exclusive avenues of communications, of communication to tens of millions of consumers. So I have some ideas on where we might start, um, what sorts of things we might fund. I'm out of time, and so I'd um, be happy to continue this conversation afterwards um, through discussion um, or um, on a personal level as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's somewhat intimidating to follow this uh, group and to, to be here as a, uh, really a bit of skepticism here and perhaps oxymorons in terms of what I'm about to talk about as a lawyer, a politician, former politician, um, who also teaches ethics, does a lot of practice in ethics and governance, uh, has served in major elective roles, and I think that therefore the question of my credibility is always at stake in these kind of discussions. But let me just try to begin here with uh, some, uh, some observations. I, I've been asked to do something that, uh, for me, uh, in spite of the mentorship of Judy Beals, my uh, former assistant attorney general, independent of whether, what the role she now plays, which is to try to give you the perspective that I can of what perhaps an attorney general in Arizona, New Mexico, uh, a law enforcer or lawyer playing in these roles uh, might 
try to do to deal with this issue, what they might see. Now you're hearing from people who are on the ground and that perspective is very important to remember, but I never quite had this problem because in my time in Massachusetts as district attorney, as attorney general, uh, there were major issues. There were issues of how do we deal with the Cambodian community, Vietnamese community, civil rights issues, the core racism, which we're even gonna hear more about now over the next uh, few days with the Boston Globe series on uh, racism. Uh, we've been here, many of the comments that are made here were made earlier in the other panel about the looking at communities that are uh, deemed different, whether they're African American here, uh, whether they were uh, Asian American uh, in different times, the various statutes that were created, hate crime statutes, civil rights statutes were aimed in some degree to try to protect uh, those individuals. Um, so we've been there to some extent. Uh, we have not been on the Arizona-Mexican border, uh, but we, it, it's not a totally foreign concept to us about how to deal with this or think about this in terms of law and law enforcement. I also think about it in the sense of somebody who comes from a background that um, uh, has been heavily influenced by my father, who was the professor of religious studies at Penn State, a member of the Church of the Brethren, uh, the, for one of the first, along with the Cat Quakers, pacifists, groups who in fact was, uh, as a conscientious objector, was in charge of the repatriation of German prisoners of war and displaced persons under the Red Cross, International Red Cross, uh, following uh, World War II. And the mentorship of a person many people here know, Preston Williams. Uh, uh, Dr. Williams was, uh, aside from his wife being my babysitter in uh, central Pennsylvania, uh, <laughs> was the first uh, African-American hire as a vice chaplain at a state university. Uh, but his work on Martin Luther King, on any number of other issues about Reinhard Niebuhr and others, uh, of course, you may not know about it, but it heavily influenced probably who I am. And I've often sort of said it would be very hard for me uh, not to have a set of values, whether I live them every day or not is another question, but a set of values very deeply embedded uh, a fundamental belief uh, in fairness, in equity, in equal justice, in compassion, uh, in mercy, in walking humbly with your God uh, at the same time that you're trying to be open. It was, that tradition of evangelical pietism was something that I came to without all the edges of fundamentalism. And in fact, a, a real effort by the evangelical pious well, at least reflected by, to the extent I can speak about it, reflecting by my father and Preston, uh, about stressing the tolerance factors, the inclusiveness, the diversity, that pluralism is one of the great American assets that even before I became a lawyer and took the oath of office, uh, as is, I was taught to some extent that, that pluralism our civil rights and our civil liberties are one of our greatest assets. And that came to them, yes, from a, a society in which there's a separation of church and state, but which, in I suppose my father's view, in opposing and supporting the prayer in schools decision in the early 60s, he and Preston would say, yes, they wanted to get the devotional aspect out of schools, and, and, but they did not intend to take the study of religion 
out of our civic education process. Uh, and if you look at the Tocqueville and the early civil society, it talks about not just the local associations, it's the association of churches, of people getting used to the idea that as citizens we participate, not always in political process, but in civic associations. And so that's where I sort of come from. Um, and I just, the, the, the segue here is, when I left Harvard College, I spent a year at Union Theological Seminary, working in East Harlem with the Mel Schoonover as part of the East Harlem Protestant Parish, um, and found it to be a very moving experience, obviously, but then ended up at Harvard Law School. Uh, and part of it was because my father believed that in the 60s and later, the law would come to be the defining vehicle of our social, moral, educational issues, that the law would be central to all of those. And in many respects, he thought of being a lawyer, probably indirectly saying as focusing on social justice, uh, would be what for the ministry had been for him, coming out of the Depression in central Pennsylvania, the first in his family to go to college. Uh, it had been his way to explore the world and to reach out and to try to make a difference uh, in the quality of people's lives. Uh, so for me, going to law school and learning about the Constitution, uh, learning that we are a government of laws and not men, that we are, have a constitutional democracy and the broad concepts set forth in those documents in spite of its three-fifths citizen background, uh, in fact, talk all the time about equality, about fairness, about due process, about inclusiveness, about diversity, uh, just the very quotes that Diane read at the beginning. Uh, a common theme of all of them was, yes, separate church from state, but you're not taking religion out of the culture. Having said that, in the roles that I got to play, and I will not bore you much more longer with this biography, but was that I discovered that in fact I was very lucky because to be a lawyer at that time, beginning with the public interest law movement in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, in my lifetime, the law has come to, to be involved with and play a major successful role in many respects in terms of beginning, you know, whether it was with, you know, Ralph Nader with the consumer movement, the environmental movement beginning in the early 70s, women's rights that we talked about at that time. Uh, uh, so when I came into office, and when uh, running for office at the time uh, uh, being appointed, um, I also came out of a time when government was highly suspect. This was the era of Richard Nixon, of Watergate, of government being the enemy, of cynicism about it. Vietnam War had happened, the civil rights movement had happened, my heroes had been assassinated. John Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. Uh, government was not, but the question was, could you utilize the core principles and values of the legal profession and the Constitution and laws to reform government, to make government a vehicle that, among many other things, upheld the law, yes, but also was a vehicle always on behalf of those who without you had no one. That that it was your role and the opportunity as a lawyer to combine my personal values with my professional skills by trying to make a difference in the quality of people's lives every day by representing the poor, the powerless, the vulnerable, or causes related thereto. Now, 
the relevance of this to what I would like to discuss in a minute is that the way it was successful was, yes, it was partly taking the profession and the values and believing them. What Joe Curtitoni referred to, what others are referring to is, how do you change the narrative here? How do you get the narrative? I guess Byron Stevenson has been talking about that a great deal in terms of uh, the criminalization and, and, and our corrections. How do you change the narrative here uh, to one of how do you use the vehicles of government, of the values of this society to achieve these purposes rather than to simply uphold law and order? What does that mean in a society of this type? It does mean there always will be tensions. And one of the things I remember in our police training, and Judy may well, I don't mean to speak to Judy, but Judy may remember in our police training or our working, it was to try to stress to the police that we understand that this is in a constitutional democracy. This is a real tension. We ask you on the one hand to protect us, public safety, security, but at the same time, your challenge, you have to protect our civil rights and civil liberties as well. That we do have a government and a law legal system that expects us to prove people guilty beyond a reasonable doubt using legal methods to achieve that. And so how do you do that? You try to teach and train lawyers, police officers, and others how to do that in the best possible practices. Uh, it's not rocket science. It's simply saying to lawyers, if you're going to, whoever you represent, poor, powerless, or others, you, you have to provide competent, zealous, diligent representation. You have to look for their best interest. And, that, and so you can attract, obviously, outstanding people to work with you to do that. Now, I, I give that because one of the things that rarely, if ever, came up in our discussions, other than when we were dealing with issues relating to religion, the issue of Operation Rescue here in Massachusetts many years ago, the challenges uh, to uh, uh, Planned Parenthood and to uh, uh, the, the, the issues relating to the, the, the gay and lesbian community uh, or the Cambodian, or you had to understand the culture in which that was operating, that, that you, could, you had to deal with that. Uh, and the training that went with it with police was and I guess this is a pretty crass statement, but one crass statement at least, is there was a point in police training following the Boston school desegregation cases and the training and the leadership that came into these departments, which was, you may be a racist, you may be a chauvinist, you may be a zealot, but as a police officer, you are a professional. And you have a responsibility to treat people with dignity, because that's the best way to police. That is what a professional does, rises to some extent above his or her prejudices. Now, what did that take to do that? This is a very shorthand analysis for all of you that are leadership experts. Leadership. The key is what's the tone at the top here? What is being established? And this is why, to some extent, we have seen and seen for a long time some of the major reforms in urban police departments. Um, yes, there's been there's some serious retrenchment occurring, but on the other hand, you saw police departments often being way ahead of other parts of society in terms of dealing with urban communities. And, and why? In part because the community involved, the people that are victims of crime are usually poor people, people of color, 
people who are different in powers and vulnerable. So the effective enforcement was viewed to some extent as a major civil rights issue, as a right to have that. Now how do we get, to, so we get here. And I guess what I would say is the challenge that exists is if I am the Attorney General of Arizona, I've been sworn to uphold the law and take an oath of office. And part of that office includes I have responsibility for border enforcement. I have responsibility for dealing with drug trafficking, with smuggling, with all kinds of other kinds of issues that I didn't make it up. I didn't devise those. That's what the laws are, and we're trying to work within that. What it also, though, allows you to do, and I think that we had, this was a choice I had to make personally, was one of the questions was, could I ever, if messages that ever had it, having taken an oath of office to uphold the law and the Constitution, could I actually impose a death penalty? Since I personally opposed it, the Church of the Brethren had opposed it, my parents had opposed it, uh, and I had enough, but I had enough good reasons from my own observation about as a prosecutor, and it's not often an accident that many prosecutors were one of the few people who actually opposed the death penalty because it doesn't get drugs out of the street, it doesn't get solved domestic violence, it doesn't deal with 99% of the crimes that people commit. So as a man, you can make mistakes and has discriminatory aspects and those kind of things. But on the other side, that was something as uh, one of my friend, the Attorney General of North Carolina said, you could never win in North Carolina because you oppose the death penalty as a symbolic matter. So here you come and you say, how do you deal with this? I just want to close with this. The way it seems to me you try to deal with this is this community effort that everybody here is talking about. You have to have collaboration. You have to find ways to do multidisciplinary interventions. Probably our most successful urban violence initiative in the 1990s was in the, called the Safe Neighborhood Initiative in the highest crime areas in Boston. And it was focused on community prosecution and community police. And it worked for several reasons. One was that politically it worked for everyone to work together. The second reason it worked it had success. But the other reason it involved the 10-point coalition, it involved the Bowdoin Geneva Street Health Center, it involved the Log School, it dealt with a whole range of multidisciplinary collaborations in the community uh, and directly involved the community in its, its support. So what I see as the opportunity here is to change the narrative that it is the role of the enforcer to enforce the laws zealously, competently, and diligently, but also humanely, fairly, equally. And one of the challenges, use your discretion, which is a whole separate topic, but who do you choose to prioritize? How do you choose it? Do you see these people? They're coming across the border as cross-border migrants. Do you see them as criminals? Do you see them as victims? How do you treat them? And that is a question of training and, I believe, a question of uh, collaboration. I close with just this, though. I said it earlier, uh, just before, and I, I really will close, Diane, <laughs> is this isn't an accident that this happened. And we've had the, yes, we have the evangelical movement. Yes, we have white, white nationalism. The reality is that has been true in every, in, in this society, in the American society, for years, the question is, how do you change that narrative? This is what I learned from a, a 
John Gardner, an American hero in my view. The view is that you have got to participate actively in this, the political system. The only group in Washington that wasn't organized was the people in his view. The only group that was not heard regularly in his view in discussions and debates was the public interest. And so the question is, how do you mobilize the people, the public interest, in terms of the values, as Joe Curtoni reflected, of the American narrative, which is about inclusion, tolerance, equal justice, equal protection. And that is a political process. This didn't happen by accident, what we're facing today, and it didn't begin a few years ago. The Democrat, my party, was always talked about border security as well. But, but there's a belief that we could do that somewhat more humanely, perhaps, or rationally. But the fact of the matter is, that's a result of elections. And the participation process that we all have to figure out as advocates is, how do you affect public policy? You have to be involved, you have to advocate, but you also have to find people who are willing to mobilize to participate as citizens. It's a government of, by, and for the people. And we operate with the consent of the governed. And hopefully the governed, the, con the challenge we have is the governed today are highly divided and very angry and frustrated, and we have had no leadership to carve a narrative that finds a way to mobilize that as our strength rather than our weakness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Really remarkably insightful and complimentary comments. So really grateful. So we have 15 minutes for questions. So I'm going to really uh, urge people to raise, ask their questions quickly and efficiently. And in fact, I think what I'd like to do is maybe have put two or three questions on the on the table. So we'll we'll take a few questions and then we'll turn it over to the panelists for your responses. So yes, go ahead. Thank you. My question has to do with the potential lifting of the restrictions um, that houses of faith uh, currently. Um, are under the lifting of political activity uh, as that's tied to the tax code. Great, okay, thank you. Let's get a couple more questions. Um, directly to Kristen Dumay, I'm curious to hear you speak a little bit about what you do see as next steps. And I feel like Nadim opened this yesterday in yeah. terms of media, which hasn't been talked about as much in this panel, but could easily be, and I would love you to speak to that before we wrap up. Um, I'm very affected by this idea of changing the narrative, um, particularly, I, I guess, coming from Europe, where I do think we have a different approach in terms of what you were talking about, um, Anisha, about actually saving refugees and migrants, which I think there's a general understanding that we need to do that in terms of rescuing people at sea and that kind of thing. We then make a huge mess of what happens next, but at least that's a start. Um, and I just wondered what the role of the media, you think, could be in this, or, or not so much what the role is, but how you change, um, or if you even believe it's possible to change the media, which has a huge impact on this narrative. Great, we'll take one, thank you. One more question from Jack, go ahead. And I'll just piggyback on that. Um, in terms of, I know that uh, evangelical leaders have actually advocated for you know, um, immigration reform, et cetera, but I'm curious as to why that hasn't necessarily trickled down to the average evangelical and connected to that um, in the work that y'all have done, both in government and in advocacy, 
and even explicitly on the border, what are the moments where you've seen narratives change for people, either in their personal lives or politically? What, what narratives have turned people's uh, perspectives from one place to another? Uh, I know there's a religious context there, but also just as a practical context that y'all dealt with day to day. Great, okay, let's um, open it up. Yeah, um, well, from a personal, a personal perspective, um, I was in charge of firearms training and I can't speak to it that much in detail, but what I tried to do was bring in sources that you wouldn't typically find in law enforcement firearms training, and that I, that I think would uh, have, have sort of caused pause to be more thoughtful. Uh, that was my contribution in, in that specific setting in that location. So there are ways to really, you know, change the narrative, to really try and tease it out and put back in something different that will give uh, someone, uh, you know, time to think about what they've, of the old narrative and compared to something new that they've, they're either gonna see. Uh, just briefly, uh, I think that uh, really some of the techniques that we've used around community reconciliation have been incredibly helpful in helping to change the narrative, especially with law enforcement. Uh, this is particularly difficult in Arizona because there is such a legacy of, uh, you know, human rights violations and, you know, really sitting down with law enforcement agencies, including Border Patrol, and asking them to be more accountable and moving forward with different policies. Um, for example, with the Missing in Arizona project, there, Maricopa County, obviously under Sheriff Harpayo's uh, leadership, was a completely different thing. And now we have a different sheriff. And we had a, a, we had a Missing in Arizona event where um, an undocumented woman had disappeared and her daughter who was documented was coming back 20 years later because nothing had happened with their mother's case. So what we all decided within the law enforcement agencies is that people would be open and transparent as to what happened. So in that particular case, the perpetrator, the main suspect, closed the case himself. He called law enforcement and said, eh, she's fine, she's in Mexico. Close the case, and they did. And so now, instead of trying to obscure that, instead of trying to play out anything, the officer sat there and told her the truth. And that's piece by piece, changing that. The hearts and minds, that helped to change the narrative for that family, and it helped to change the narrative for that law enforcement agency as well. All right, so I, I kind of have comments on all the questions, so I'll try to, because I see, I see many of them as related, but I'll, I'll, I'll speak a, a bit. Um, so where have I seen, in terms of evangelicalism, the narrative changing? Um, I see it in terms of a younger generation, much more receptive to um, um, questioning um, the doctrines they've inherited and this kind of cultural construct. Um, so, um, and I work with students and, and, but also, I'm a historian, so historical bias here. I have found that when I, when I speak on these issues, simply demonstrating, not starting with, this is wrong, but saying, where did this come from? You know, what, what forces came together? Because evangelicals have such a strong sense of kind of God-ordained 
and, and not a strong sense of the his, historical construction of ideas or how notions that seem God-ordained have ac actually are situated historically and culturally. And if I can demonstrate that, then there's a lot more openness to asking why and what are alternatives and, and what are the implications. And so I see some hope there. However, um, to, um, to build on what Nadim was saying, um, I, um, we are, we being, so I'm, as a person of faith myself who moves in and out of the evangelical community, we are under-resourced. Um, we are up against, you know, millions, billions of dollars over years, at least tens of millions, hundreds of millions that are being poured into, have been poured into for decades, think tanks and, um, you know, these conservative media um, networks and, um, and the voice of the religious left, or even just the religious center, has a very hard time being heard. I think that one untapped resource here, again, my situatedness um, is coming through here, but our um, acad Christian academics, actually, including many at Christian colleges, um, who are um, just pulled in so many different directions, if we could, um, and, and yet who have very good insights to share on this, who can speak to their communities and um, kind of go back and forth. I would like to see more resources put in that direction. But then there's the popular literature, um, publishing houses. And I mean, we've seen in cases of um, you know, Rachel Held Evans, Jen Hatmaker, and that, so this is getting back to the evangelical leaders question, you know, Russell Moore. Um, it, if you, you're a leader as long as you are following the, the group. As soon as you kind of cross a line, you're, you, you lose your authority, you lose your publisher, your promoter, people aren't selling your books, and, and so we have to look at that aspect as well and um, have some alternative um, platforms, I think, and alternative, I think, especially popular works that um, offer different deep stories. Uh, just real quickly, uh, I just refer some people to uh, the sermon that Jonathan Walton gave last Sunday at Memorial Church. Uh, so I've benefited from Peter Gomes and Jonathan Walton as wonderful speakers. But is stay woke, which is the keep awake and making the reference, which I think I know everybody's beginning to make, but between... 85 years ago, the dedication of Memorial Church to the fallen Harvard alums in the Great War, the war to end all wars. Uh, and two months later, in January 1933, Adolf Hitler became chancellor in Germany and began his attack, first of all, in making, in the first part, was making Germany great again. The second part reference was the attack on the media and the claim that the media was fake news. Uh, and the third was, the, interestingly, a point that uh, Sean, I think, has made, made to me earlier was the stripping of the civil service bureaucracy. Now, in that case, it was taking the Jewish members out, but it was, it was a, a, a gradual stripping. And the part of me that is of concern here has been that what we've seen over a long period of time is the diminution of government as seen as a, vehicle, a positive vehicle. Government is the enemy. Government is the problem, not part of the solution. And 
at least my generation grew up with the idea of the reverse of that. Yes, it had its flaws, but whether you're Republicans or Democrats, uh, maybe smaller government, maybe bigger government, but you, government was the noble way, the vehicle. That, that's sort of just one thing to, to, to raise the political uh, question. The political activity one is one, interestingly, the evangelicals have abandoned. They come and get us. I mean, the, the, and there's a certain amount that, 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 that you know, that the urban church has done, which is, you know, you, the, the great thing for any political candidate is if you're on your toes, you know, the last three weeks of the election cycle, you show up in every church in, in any urban area, particularly Roxbury, Mattapan, Dorchester, and that's where you get your votes uh, and that kind of thing. But I think that, the, secondly, the political activity is actually, that does not eliminate ad advocacy, for one thing. Uh, it does eliminate perhaps election, electioneering, you know, but it also allows you to do pretty much anything you want as long as you invite the other side to come. That takes away the partisanship and the electioneering piece of it. So to some extent, as somebody have often said, we've also got to be, I mean, uh, I guess Sean made the rest of it, the children of light have got to stop being naive here and get just as tough and real about this is, this is real politics. This is, this is life in the fray. This is not whining and complaining on the sideliners. John Gardner said, why are we the privileged have the right to stay on the sidelines. Uh, that is, we have to engage, and that that it's, that's pr not pretty. And the perfect is not often the enemy of the good. But the fact is that you engage. The 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 education piece. I just wanted to stress on it. I think one of the biggest for the media thing is interesting because the social media, of course, is beginning to take over a lot of this. One of the critiques here is that 40, where where civic education was mandatory in most schools, over. The, only Derek Bach, at least, reports that only 40% of public schools today require civic education, which does explain why people cannot, I mean, used to joke about Jay Leno going out in the street and asking, you know, what's the Supreme Court? And, you know, they, you know there's some bar down the street, but uh, who gets elected to the Supreme Court? But the fact is, civic education, it's, you know, fake news works because people do not understand the core uh, piece here. So I think that there's a certain amount of just plain re-engage, rebuilding the civil society as a foundation. Now I think a part of the civil society, it does not eliminate religion. It means that religion has to be there uh, uh, in this process. And to finally, just to the police, to, 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 to the point that, uh, that Professor Matoy is making here is that is the, the police are, to some extent, even with the Border Patrol, the trickiest part there is I, I think they probably have a hard time figuring who their community is. I mean, in, 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 in urban communities, you have many police chiefs who argue to the, we are bonded with the community. We are the play. We have to have the community. Your jerk Curtis Tony said, crime goes down when you bond with your community. It, that's how your victims participate, that kind of thing. So I think the trick is, Who's going to create the community that the Border Patrol uh, represents? Which one do they represent? How do you uh, uh, serve here? But, but the other way is, uh, frankly, uh, I still think it's a leadership question. And, and, and you know, the, the, the argument that you're willing to go with Sheriff Arapa and still try to discuss and communicate, um, the only other way is to beat them in an election. Mm -hmm. I mean, and be very crass about it. Some days we got to win some elections uh, at a lot of different levels, and 
Remember, the Democrat, my party, under one of the a great pe person as president, uh, Barack Obama, which probably gets a lot of the racism is related to that, we lost a thousand local and state offices. It's not an accident. It didn't just happen by magic. Uh, when you come through here, uh, and local, and, and, and when we run a national election, we're running essentially a 15,000 elections. There, no, there is no such thing as a national election that's run at the county, local, and state levels. State, there's, and that's where, who controls those places? Who controls the census? Who controls, who gets appointed to election commissions? Who get, you know, you don't have, to have and, and so any little biases one way or the other uh, have a difference. Sorry. No, so uh, just a quick, a quick closing comment. Um, first of all, again, thank you all. I, I want to make a couple just uh, connections here potentially then for our wrap-up panel. So earlier Erica talked about uh, neoliberalism and she talked about this move to privatization and that combines very deeply with a, a critique of government and a suspicion of government and the move to privatize what used to be uh, a fundamental understanding of public services and the importance of government to protect those public services. So that's a relationship. It's not unrelated to the fact that in schools we don't have civics because schools have shifted from uh, democratically minded understanding of education for, civic, uh, for participation in civic democracy to a more marketized understanding of skill-based uh, capacities for job uh, for future, for, for future um, uh, job success. So these are not unrelated. And just to, to close with the notion of changing the narrative, I love, Kristen, your comment about the history is really critical because these, these, these cultural, these moments of cultural uh, absolutism and the binaries that we hear very much represented, the clear binaries that I'll speak a little bit more later, about later, but uh, we don't know, and people don't often realize that these are not inevitable. They seem inevitable. They seem so deeply rooted. But the history of evangelicalism alone invites a whole other understanding. So for people of goodwill who are interested to realize that this notion of evangelicalism is not the only way to think about one's religion, uh, to recognize complexity, to recognize that there are other viewpoints, and in my experience, Bringing that to fore, inviting people into that complexity itself can be a profoundly um, uh, transforming experience. Because again, if we don't, and, and the demonization of the other never allows us to do this. Uh, and then finally, you're, we, we're, we're referencing this, but I'm assuming you're referencing one way, dark money, which is a, a, a story of the way that money has been used very explicitly, very intentionally, very, very uh, in a very sinister way to affect these changes um, for decades. And so I, I'll, I'll just close here by saying, uh, I hope that we, we, we and the uh, people who are concerned with that won't um, choose to go that route because the manipulation of what that represents, I think is, is itself uh, morally abhorrent. It's the transparency, it's the open engagement of difference that I think we need to be promoting, the consciousness of those differences, and diversity within religious communities has everything to do centrally with this, with this opportunity. So thank you for giving me the, the, the chair's uh, <laughs> uh, moment of, uh, of closure here. Can we please join us to thank this remarkable panel? Thank you.